which uh, is a name that should be familiar to you. There's some names and some words that should be familiar to you. But Thomas Huxley well, was considered Darwin's bulldog. Uh, he is a uh, previous century man, uh, a contemporary of, of Darwin's. And um, Thomas Huxley said this, and I quote, The primary and direct evidence in favor of evolution can be furnished only by paleontology. If evolution has taken place, its marks will be left. If it has not taken place, there will be its refutation. Now let me define a couple of terms. Paleontology, everybody know what that is? That's just uh, the study of fossils. It differs from geology because geology is the study of rocks. But there's a lot of geology in it. But paleontology is the study of fossils. And the word refutation, that, that shouldn't... That means it's refuted, it's overturned. Let me read it again. If evolution has taken place, its marks will be left. If it has not taken place, there will be its, re its uh, refutation. What this great evolutionist is saying, in essence, is that only in paleontology, um, it is only in the fossil record that evolution will be proved or disproved. Tonight we want to talk about fossils. Um, I, I want to remind you of what we did two weeks ago. Number one, I, I tried to give you a panoramic sweep. I put a, a, on the board a formula, and I said evolution equals time plus chance. And what I tried to do is overturn just those three terms. And I, and I, and I want to go back and repeat something I said about the term evolution. We talked about microevolution and macroevolution. And um, the, uh, the, I hope you remember those terms. And microevolution is the, uh, the various modifications and the variations that occur within kinds. For instance, uh, dogs. Uh, three or four sets of dogs mate over the centuries, and now we've got chihuahuas and Great Danes. That's microevolution. Um, and what, uh, what, what the evolutionist does is take the evidence found in microevolution and extrapolate, that's another term, he, he, he blows it up to uh, make that applicable to all of life. And that is the, uh, the general theory or macroevolution. And what I said to you last week is that microevolution is not something that any creationist has ever has ever um, argued with. We believe absolutely that there are variations within kinds. A classic illustration of microevolution is this audience. There are people here with red hair and blonde hair and no hair. There are people here with uh, funny body shapes and then there are massive hunks like myself. Um, but uh, th those are evidences of variations within kinds. No one who believes the Bible has ever, has ever uh, argued with that. Microevolution, in essence, could be called creationism. We have no, we have no objection with that. No, no, nothing in the Bible overturns that. What we are opposed to, of course, is that this microevolution is extrapolated over to the general theory saying that in, in this, and by the way, all of the evidence that is produced by the evolutionist camp, settle down, Jimmy, all of the evolution, all of the, the evidence that is produced is of the microevolution variety. Darwin's finches, the beaks of the finch, found on Daphne Island in the Galapagos, are, are not... This giant... Uh, a book was just reviewed in the New York Times 
about um, uh, written called um, The Beaks of the Finches. That was the book. Hailed as a great evidence of evolution, when in fact it's nothing more than an evidence of microevolution that we have never objected to. Never. Now, that was what we did last week. What I want to do now is try and hone in on some specifics. And the specific that we're going to hone in on tonight is the specific of fossils or paleontology. Now, let me remind you that Thomas Huxley, Darwin's bulldog, said that only in paleontology, you need to remember this quote, only in paleontology is the evidence of, in favor of evolution to be found. If evolution is true, it will be found in the fossils. If it is not found in the fossils, that will be its refutation. Um, for the evolutionist, fossils is his strongest point, at least has been in the past. Yet ever since Darwin, ladies and gentlemen, the fossil record, well, not ever since, but in the last 70 years, 90 years, the fossil record has become an embarrassment to evolutionists. The predictions, the bold predictions concerning what evolutionists expected to find in the fossil record has failed miserably. And uh, what has been found, to make the whole situation more embarrassing, is that the fossil record remarkably is in accord with creation, which is something we'll talk about a little bit later uh, as we close. But may I say, ladies and gentlemen, that the fossil problem for the evolutionists is getting worse every day. With each new piece of paleontology, the fossil record becomes more of an embarrassment to the, um, to the evolutionist. My friends, Darwin's most formidable opponents were not clergymen, right. but fossil experts. The ones who have done the most damage is not the clergy, Actually, I wouldn't even say the most damage, but major damage is the paleontologist. Now, this is an un, we're we're trying out this room, guys, because we needed more room to eat over there in another building. Uh, we ran out of tables, and so we thought, well, okay, let's move it over here. Now, now we we're 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 trying to play catch up. So I don't know if we'll stay here. We just thought maybe this might work. We'll we'll see. But this is not going to be ideal. Um, what we're doing right now. But what I want to do. I don't know whether, how many of you can see that, but what I want to do is um, uh, describe basic evolutionary theory. Um, and, and I don't think this is, um, um, I mean, I think you already know this. By the way, this you can see, this came right out of that book, uh, uh, Michael Denton's book. But this is, uh, of course, called, I mean, and popularly known as the tree of life. And there's some features about it, by the way. This is a very primitive form, and in, and in biology textbooks that, that were, are used in college campuses today, you'll find something far more advanced and far more uh, technical than something like this. This was first written in 1866 by a man, a, a, an evolutionist, a Darwinian by the name of Ernest Tackle. But um, what, I mean, the, the, the overall thrust of this thing is clear. You have, number one, a common source of life. And from this common source of life um, branches all of life as we know it. 
And secondly, or something that's very clear, and I think you already understand, is that uh, as this um, common source of life, by the way, um, the evolutionist has never yet figured out how life came from chemicals. We're going to talk about it, but he doesn't. Actually, he did, but we'll talk about that later. But anyway, um, but coming from this common source of life, as it evolves, it branches into numerous other forms, both plant and animal. Now, in this particular diagram, this is the plant life, and that's animal life. I don't know what that is. I think that's sea life. I don't know. But um, uh, it branches off. That, that's the major point. That's all I wanted you to see is this, uh, this thing branches off. And a as it branches off, you get numerous transitional forms. As, um, as this branch would break off into this, you would get transi transitional forms. And these transitional forms would take place by a series of micromutations. For instance, how does, um, how does the bat develop its wing? Well, through a series of micromutations, they branch off and finally uh, develop a, an ability to fly. This is called gradualism. This is where natural selection would be. Would, uh, you've heard of those terms? Gradualism, just by um, very, micro, uh, very small mutations that they advance upward and branch off into new forms of life. You know this, don't you? I mean, you've heard this, this much. Um, common source of life, branching off into other forms of life, and these branches, as it branches, producing numerous, micro, or, or spawned by numerous micromutations, you get all kinds of different forms of life. This is the tree of life, ladies and gentlemen, and basically, even in this primitive form, represents evolutionary theory as it exists today. Now, um... The reason I th throw this up here tonight is because if this is true, then as these micromutations take place, the record of their so doing should appear in the fossil record. Um, actually, not should appear, it was predicted that they would appear. In fact, Darwin himself said, if my theory is correct, it will be found in the fossil record. And Darwin could be excused for his ignorance 135 years ago. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, his ignorance can no longer be excused, and nor can yours. Um, <clears throat> how does the chipmunk uh, develop into a bat? Oh, it's simply through these micromutations and the branching off of life from this common source through uh, natural selection and gradualism. That's, that's basic evolutionary theory. You learned it in your biology class. This, in essence, is a theory that describes what evolution could produce. But does the fossil record support that evolution did produce this adaptive complexity? This is a theory. It was a marvelous theory. Unfortunately, it has been disproved scores of times, but that's what theories are, ladies and gentlemen. Theories are theories. And then they are set up to a scientific investigation, and then they are either proved or disproved. And this one has been disproved in every branch of science known to man today. Well, but this is the theory of what it was or what evolution could produce. But does the fossil record, 
prove that it did produce it? That's the issue. And the answer, ladies and gentlemen, is no. Not one fossil record of the gradual micromutations that would be necessary exists. Not one. Stephen Stanley was describing the, paleo the paleontological find in the Bighorn Basin in Wyoming. And once it was discovered, there was a great excitement because there was, a, according to evolutionary theory, a continuous local record of fossil deposits for about five million years in this Bighorn Basin in Wyoming. Um, and because the record uh, was so complete... Evolutionists got so excited and assumed that, that the, the certain populations of the basin uh, could be linked together to illustrate continuous evolution or continuous micromutations. However, on the contrary, the species that were once thought to have turned into other species turned out, upon further investigation, to be overlapping in time with their alleged descendants. Do you understand what I just said? What they were hoping when they found this thing is that all this fossil record would show how this one was linked to this one or how, how this one came from this one. And what they found was, no, this was, did not show some continuous development, but what it showed is that this one existed side by side with this one and they overlapped in time. Therefore, the one was not the descendant of the other. And this evolutionist, uh, Stephen Stanley, which is a name that should be familiar to some of you, says about the Bighorn Basin in Wyoming, and I quote, I'm quoting an evolutionist, the fossil record does not convincingly document a single transition from one species to another. Not a single one. You know, just about all of us um, took a biology course in college. It's interesting um, how the, um, the, the texts that we use uh, have been so widely debunked now by evolutionists. But uh, some of the text still exists in, in backward schools. <laughs> um, uh, the, the major one written by a guy by the name of uh, Fatuma, I think, something like that. But now the evolutionists have turned on him but anyway, anybody who's taken a college biology course during the last 70, 80 years uh, has been led to believe that the fossil record was a bulwark of support for the classic Darwinian thesis. And many of us were swayed into evolutionary thinking because we were told that the evidence was insurmountable. And I am suggesting to you tonight, ladies and gentlemen, that the fossil record has become a liability, a source of embarrassment, and an issue to be avoided by the evolutionary camp. This bulwark of defense that swayed some of you is now being debunked. by those who continue to reject special creationism. Paleontologists apparently thought that it was their duty 
to, uh, to protect the rest of us from um, the erroneous conclusions that we may draw if we had known the actual state of the evidence. Um, Stephen Jay Gould, does that name ring a bell? Uh, Harvard uh, uh, paleontologist? One of the most outspoken evolutionists in this country. Stephen Jay Gould um, describes concerning the fossil record. He says this, and I quote, the ex- listen to this, folks. The extreme rarity of transitional forms in the fossil record, he called that extreme rarity the trade secret of paleontology. Stephen Stanley explained that the doubts among paleontologists about gradualistic evolution were for so long suppressed. And the suppression began with T.H. Huxley, who would not speak of his negative attitudes toward gradual change in natural selection. However, he and Darwin fought uh, over this issue, and it caused Huxley to uh, propound the whole saltational, which we'll get to, the, the, uh, the, the leaps uh, in the, the uh, natural selection process. But anyway, we'll talk about that later. Niles Eldridge is a name not familiar to many of you, but Niles Eldridge, in the early 80s, co-authored a series of papers on paleontology with Stephen Jay Gould. Now, if you don't know Niles Eldridge, you should know Stephen Jay Gould, at least know that name. He's a, a famous Harvard uh, evolutionist. <clears throat> And Stephen Jay, uh, these two men co-authored a group of papers, and we're going to quote from them in a minute, uh, some more in a minute. But I want you to listen to this quote. This is an early 1980 quote. We paleontologists have said that the history of life supports the story of gradual adaptive change, all the while really knowing that it does not. But how, ladies and gentlemen, I ask you, how could a a deception of this magnitude be perpetrated on a body as large as even this one? How could it be perpetrated? How could it be um, kept a secret by people whose definition it is to be pursuers of the truth. I don't know, but I have, a, I have a hunch. And the hunch is, ladies and gentlemen, that these people are not dedicated evolutionists. They're dedicated atheists. And their evolution supports their cause. Now, gang, may I pause long enough to say this? This is an aside. Stay with me. Evolutionists will criticize the Christian because he, he, he accuses us of circular reasoning. He says that we believe the Bible because the Bible says to believe the Bible. We say we believe certain things, and he says, well, how do you know that? And we, we appeal to the Bible, and we appeal to the existence of God, and da-da-da-da-da-da. He, he, he accuses us of circular reasoning, and oftentimes he's right, and we need to clean up our act. But my point is simply this. He, too, is a circular reasoner. He begins any, we begin any discussion with the assumption that God exists. And he begins any discussion with the assumption that God doesn't exist, but represents us as being some kind of closed-minded buffoon. 
How can this happen, ladies and gentlemen? I want to read you some quotes about the um, fossil record. Again, ladies and gentlemen, not a one of these comes from Christians. Uh, this appeared in an article in Natural History uh, entitled The Return of Hopeful Monsters, written by Stephen Jay Gould, um, who is, as I said, a leading spokesman for evolution in the U.S. today. He says this, The fossil record, with its abrupt transitions, offers no support for gradual change. Why did you believe that? The evolutionists don't believe it. All paleontologists know that the fossil record contains precious little in the way of intermediate forms. Transitions between major groups are characteristically abrupt. That is, there is no gradual natural selection change. When you find a new uh, uh, life form in the, in the fossil record, it appears there abruptly. No transition between the chipmunk to the bat. Just chipmunk and bat. Um, I, I think some evolutionists have come to realize that the fossil record is so bad, relative to their theory, that they are trying to avoid it entirely. And they, by the way, have come up with, uh, because it's so bad, they've come up with other explanations, and we'll talk about those in another week. But Mark Ridley, who is a British evolutionist, uh, says in an article that appeared in New Scientist in 1981, he says this, No real evolutionist, whether gradualist or punctu punctuationists, uses the fossil record as evidence in favor of the theory of evolution as opposed to special creation. No, the no evolutionist who knows what he's doing ever appeals to the fossil record because it is a source of embarrassment for him. The, the controversy, the clatter around this particular issue has become so loud that even the popular press has picked it up. And in an article that appeared in Newsweek magazine, of all places, um, entitled, Is Man a Subtle Accident?, we find this, and I quote, and this is my last quote. The missing link. You've heard of the missing links. Well, that's those transitional forms. The missing link between man and the apes, whose absence has comforted religious fundamentalists since the days of Darwin, is merely the most glamorous of a whole hierarchy of phantom creatures. The more scientists have searched for transitional forms that lie between species, the more they have been frustrated. Ladies and gentlemen, Darwin could be excused because he was predicting something would be there and said himself that if it doesn't, there, it doesn't lie there, it will be refutation of my theory. 135 years later, I, I think um, Origin was published in 1859, uh, something like that. 135 years later, ladies and gentlemen, the fossil record has spoken. What I can't understand is people who, who, who claim that they are followers of God continue to buy into this stuff at the same time announce their claim to be a Christian. I told you two weeks ago, ladies and gentlemen, you cannot have both of those. Choose this day and thou shalt serve. Despite the 
tremendous increase in geological activity in every corner of the globe. The, uh, the Burgess Shale, the Ediacara Hills in southern Australia, despite a tremendous increase in geological paleontological discovery and despite the discovery of many strange and unknown life forms, the fossil record has still not produced what was predicted. Charles Darwin can be excused. You can't. In fact, what paleontology has produced is the subject of the last half of our hour together, or our 45 minutes together. What has it produced? Well, I want to read you a, a rather lengthy quote from Stephen Jay Gould. I told you about this book that he wrote um, uh, in, oh, it was a series of papers in, uh, in cooperation with Niles Eldridge. Stephen Jay Gould is a Harvard uh, evolutionist. Um, and um, I guess Stephen Stanley is the guy that we quoted over um, the, um, the Bighorn Basin in Wyoming. But because of their study of paleontology, they have postulated a new theory called punctuated equilibrium. You don't need that term. But, and basically, um, they have postulated this new theory of punctuated equilibrium to deal with their embarrassment at the, at the fossil record. Because it's not there, they have come up with a new explanation, and the new explanation is punctuated equilibrium. That is, all of a sudden, God did something, I they wouldn't say God, that, that something appeared in the fossil record completely without a transitional form. In fact, the, those in the, in the um, cognoscenti uh, call it the punk eek uh, theory, punctuated equilibrium. I thought that was rather cute. But... Um, because the fossil record is in no better shape, actually in worse shape than it was in 1859, and despite all the, the embarrassing um, uh, evidence that it has produced, and all of the fossil hunters who went out trying to prove a theory that they already believed, um, this is what now Gould and Eldridge are saying. Stay with this, folks. This is, uh, if you can get these words down, just three words. The history of most fossil species... This is a quote from the book. The history of most fossil species includes two features particularly inconsistent with gradualism. You know what gradualism is? This is gradualism. Stephen Jay Gould says, when, when we studied, and now that we've reinvestigated uh, paleontology, we have found that there are two things uh, that are completely out of uh, line with our theory. The first one is stasis. S-T-A... S-I-S. -S. You, want, you want that word. Stasis, in essence, let me quote him, most species exhibit no directional change during their tenure on Earth. They appear in the fossil record looking pretty much the same as when they disappeared. Morphological change is usually limited and directionless. Now, you, you know what this is. This says that we've got a direction, uh, higher, more complex uh, beings. And what he's saying is the fossil record proves stasis, that, uh, that, that um, animal life appears the same when it entered as when it left. No morphological changes. And what morphological changes are there are um, limited and directionless. So the fossil record has demonstrated stasis not gradualism. The second thing, sudden appearance. In any local area, 
A species does not arise gradually by the steady transformation of its ancestors. It appears all at once fully formed. Think, ladies and gentlemen, for God's sake, think! Do you hear what that said? Do you hear what that said? You bought into this back in your ninth grade biology class. And now the biology of the evolutionists are turning on you. They said, no, no, it doesn't do this. We don't see any gradualism at all. What we see is sudden appearance, which means that uh, there's no transformation of its ancestry. It always appears fully formed. What does that sound like to you? Does it sound like creation? God forbid that it should be creation. And by the way, Stephen Jay Gould is certainly not saying, oh, that's creation. No, ma'am. That's when they came up with this other theory called punk eek. Punctuated equilibrium. We're going to talk about that in another week. In another week. But, ladies and gentlemen, both of those, stasis and sudden appearance, is the opposite. The opposite of what Darwinian theory predicted in 1859. That's paleontology revisited, ladies and gentlemen, in the 80s. In short, if evolution means the gradual change of one kind of organism into another, like this, then the outstanding characteristic of the fossil record is that is completely contrary to this. You want to know what fossils prove? That's what they prove. The complete opposite of that. They, uh, the Darwinists explained the sudden appearance thing um, by, um, by saying that the transitional intermediates were for some reason not fossilized. Did you get that? They, they say, oh yeah, okay, well the fossil record now says that there's sudden appearance, and so well, all those transitional forms with micromutations that we predicted, the reason that we don't find those is because none of those were fossilized. That's a pretty convenient uh, explanation, don't you think? They talk about this invisible hand that has done this and that and the other. You know, you can postulate just about anything if it's invisible. That's very convenient to have it invisible. Well, okay, well, I'm supposed to buy into this, I guess. Um... Uh, they, they, they talk about this sudden appearance and the reason, that the way they explain that is because these transitional forms were not fossilized. But the stasis, the stasis is another issue, ladies and gentlemen. The fact that most BCs exhibit no directional changes. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a consistent, fundamental disproof of this thing which was considered to be the bulwark of evolutionary thought. The fossil record shows a consistent pattern of sudden appearance followed by stasis. Did you get that? Ladies and gentlemen, I didn't prove that. I, these paleontologists from Harvard are, some, are proving this. I mean, you know, I, I, I believe it but it certainly is in contradiction to this stuff. Um, 
Um, let me read you this quote. Um, the fossil record, uh, sudden appearance, followed by that life's history is more a story of variation around a set of basic designs. Variation around a set of basic designs, microevolution, just like we have here. That the history of paleontology demonstrates that life is a history of variation around basic designs, like the length of the beak of the finch on the Galapagos Islands. Um, a, a variation of, around a set of basic designs than one of accumulating improvement and that extinction has been predominantly by catastrophe rather than gradual uh, obsolescence. Do you understand that? What they're saying is that these, these forms that have become extinct have died away because of natural selection. They couldn't survive. Well, what the fossil record is suggesting is that extinction has come, no, no, not like that, but by catastrophe. And it's even called catastrophism. Um, and that orthodox interpretations of the fossil record, listen, orthodox interpretations of the fossil record often owe more to Darwinian preconception than it does to the evidence itself. Isn't that amazing? 135 years uh, after Darwin, the missing links are still missing. And that uh, wonderful, marvelous Darwinian mechanism that was responsible for swinging countless scientists into the evolutionary camp, sweeping some of you alongside with them, uh, that this mechanism that was responsible for convincing so many has been discredited yet somehow we are told that evolution is a fact I for one am furious that we let them get away with that we should be ashamed Colin Patterson, who is the senior paleontologist at the British Museum of Natural History, said in a talk that he gave to the American Museum of Natural History in 1981, he said this, I now realize that in accepting evolution, I had moved from science into faith. I have one more quote for you. <clears throat> We're almost finished. Quote, geology assuredly does not reveal any such finely graded organic chain. And this is perhaps the most obvious and serious objection that can be urged against the theory of evolution. You know who said that? Charles Darwin. What do fossils prove? I'll tell you what they prove, ladies and gentlemen. They prove the Genesis flood. Why are there so many fossils? Do you realize how tough it is to become a fossil? 
you got you got to work at it to be a fossil. I mean, folks. Uh, I mean, if you if you fall off a boat into the ocean, somebody's going to eat you. You're not going to be fossilized. You have to you have to be preserved from the natural forces and processes of decay. There, something has to overtake you, like a catastrophe, like Pompeii or a flood. Ladies and gentlemen, fossils are not a witness to evolution. The collection, the giant collection of numerous fossils dotting this planet are not a testimony to evolution. They are a witness to God's judgment against sin. There is a statement in Psalm 119 where the psalmist says something like this. He says, My eyes flow with water because thy people do not keep thy law. Well, do you know what brings me to the point of wanting to weep? Is that good, fine, precious people like you have been duped by the devil. If you are, ladies and gentlemen, then it is incumbent upon you to study some of the same stuff I have. I dare you. Father, um, forgive us that we um, that we let an academic community intimidate us. We didn't know enough about your word to defend it, and we certainly weren't about to pay the price to study any scientific evidence. Oh God. Um, how could we have questioned you? Father, um, I do pray that you'll make us bold. N not for the purpose of embarrassing a biology teacher at school, but for the purpose of our own confidence in your word. Might we begin to look at it, O oh God? with a certainty that once we have read it, we have read absolute truth. No error, no myth, no collection of fable, but we have heard the mind of God expressed as black words on a white page and then leave it to go do it. We commit ourselves to that, Father. Raise up a mighty army of people who love your word and are able to defend it against all gainsayers.
not to make us look smart, but so that the God that we love might be glorified in our midst. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, 